Coming up, the late, great George A. Romero clears up a long-standing rumor, and the former Vice President of the United States, Al Gore, talks renewables. A, a lot of the images come from my new slideshow, and w what I try to do with the slide material is to recreate for others the aha moments that I personally have had. And in that case, that's a great example that you use. That hit me the same way. When you see the streets melting. And people's shoes literally sticking, sticking to, to the, the asphalt. Yeah. Absolutely. I've got, I've got a whole uh, deck of slides just of streets melting around the world. Everyone thought, for example, that Night of the Living Dead was basically a racial statement, and it wasn't. My organization, we do a complete offset. I planted 16,000 trees on my farm last year, but we do other offsets uh, uh, in addition to that. We were just pissed off that the, that the 60s hadn't worked. We've built a civilization optimized for the climate conditions that led to the flourishing of humanity, and now we're destroying those conditions. We can bring it back. We can stop the worst of these consequences, but we have to act. Hey, folks. Welcome to the House of Krauss. I'm Richard Krauss. We've just taken out the recycling, we've had the solar panels installed on the roof, and just in the nick of time, because pretty soon, former Vice President of the United States, Al Gore, will be here to talk about renewable energy and all sorts of things connected to his film, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. First up, though, I wanted to talk about the late, great George A. Romero for a couple of more minutes. I posted a longer conversation with him just after he passed away. But this conversation I found in the vault. I found just a little clip of this. It's from a live event that we did a few years ago. And we're talking about Night of the Living Dead. And we asked him about the casting of Dwayne Jones. Romero cast Jones in the film as the hero. He played Ben. And Ben is one of the most crucial characters in the film. He manages to survive the zombie hordes only to be gunned down at the end of the film. And here's a spoiler alert. Well, I guess I've already given the spoiler. Gunned down at the end of the film by a redneck posse. Now, what makes that significant, what makes that really, really stand out is that in the late 60s when this film came out, Ben was played by an African-American actor. And the casting of Dwayne Jones was thought to be a statement about civil rights. It was thought to be uh, 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 an answer to the then recent assassination of Martin Luther King. It was thought to be a lot of things. Now, Night of the Living Dead is about a lot of things. Literally about America walking forward in fear, about commercialism. It's about a lot of things. People are literally eating one another. I mean, that's a pretty heavy metaphor for the time. But apparently, according to George A. Romero, the casting of Dwayne Jones was colorblind casting. George went on to say that he thought that maybe Night of the Living Dead was the first film to have an African-American man playing the lead role regardless of, rather than because of his race. Now, I disagree. I think that that signifier belongs to Sidney Poitier in movies like The Bedford Incident and Duel at Diablo. But there is no questioning that without the casting of Dwayne Jones, 
that Night of the Living Dead would have been terrifying still. It would have been a movie that people talked about. It would have been gory. It would have been a lot of things. It would have been innovative, but it might not have hit the nerves that it did. It might not have entered the zeitgeist in the same way that it did. Here's George A. Romero talking about Dwayne Jones. Everyone thought, for example, that Night of the Living Dead was basically a racial statement, and it wasn't. I mean, we chose a, an, an African-American lead actor because he was the best actor from among our friends. And, you know, yes, there were rioting. We were just pissed off that the, that the 60s hadn't worked. You know, peace and love wasn't working out. There was a new war. There were riots in L.A. And, uh, but that had nothing to do with it. And, and we were driving. We had... We had made the first answer print of Night of the Living Dead, the first answer print, and we threw it in the trunk of a car. We're driving to New York, and that night on the road, we heard that Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And all of a sudden, you know, I mean, my partner and I looked at each other and we said, I think this movie might be worth a little more now. <laughs> I, you know, it's a terrible thing to, terrible way to react, but that's the way we reacted. And <laughs> And in fact, it was. And, and, and unfortunately, what has happened is that it's, it's viewed from, it's been viewed ever since as a purely racial statement. And it wasn't. When, we, when Jack and I wrote the script, the same things happened to that guy. He was, a, he was white. He was Caucasian when we wrote the script. The same things happened to him. He got shot by the posse. Uh, but... You know, you couldn't help but look at it as, uh, you know, some sort of a statement about race, um, just Which, simply because he was a, uh, a black man. That was the late, great George A. Romero dispelling a myth, a long-held myth, about Night of the Living Dead. Now, a decade after the glorified PowerPoint presentation, An Inconvenient Truth won the Best Documentary Oscar and opened a lot of eyes to the effects of climate change, along comes a follow-up called An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power. For better and for worse, the new film feels more like a movie than its predecessor did. The slideshow hasn't completely disappeared, but it is enhanced by the addition of on-the-ground footage, news reports, and extensive interviews with Al Gore. And the former vice president is a friendly figure, as you are about to find out in my interview. He's a slow-talking baritone with a bit of a drawl, but don't let the Will Rogers persona fool you. He is a canny spokesman. His language is filled with highly charged catchphrases about brain bombs, about how climate change is a movement that will advance mankind, uh, how and why the world is under an existential threat. He is a skilled speaker, ramping up his message in the movie through carefully chosen words and a rational, although frequently impassioned, assessment of the scientific facts. I think you'll find that is true here in my interview with him as well. Also, in the room is Jeff Skoll. Jeff Skoll is one of the guys that created eBay. He is an extraordinarily wealthy man who is part of Al Gore's support system. He was there for the interview. He helps produce the films. He is someone who is deeply committed to the environmental cause, along with the former vice president. Here's my interview with Al Gore and Jeff Skoll. 
flooding on Lake Ontario has doubled litter on the shoreline. There's threats of tsunamis on the Great Lakes. And the $300 million Great Lakes Restoration Program in the U.S. was under threat by Donald Trump, although it's now back in the budget. What should Canadians know about these unique bodies of water? What is the biggest threat and what can we do to preserve them? Well, Canada has more lakes than the rest of the entire world put together. And the amount of fresh water here in Canada is just absolutely incredible. And along with the U.S., uh, our two countries must recognize the unique importance and value of the Great Lakes. Actually, the decision by the Congress to reverse the recommendation of Donald Trump and restore funding for the protection of the Great Lakes is a good sign that our binational cooperation will continue in spite of Donald Trump. I hope that extends to other environmental issues as well. I know it will extend to some other issues. Uh, Now, the litter problem, you know, uh, since the 1950s, the world has produced an incredible volume of plastic, and almost all of it is still with us. It's in the oceans. It's frozen in the Arctic ice, uh, it's threatening sea life, some of it's showing up in the fish that people catch for consumption, Uh, and of course litter is more than plastic, but that's the worst single part of it, and we really have to come to grips with that. And as for your third uh, issue, the emergence uh, of uh, windstorms with uh, winds of unusual uh, speed and ferocity, That's due to the extra heat energy being trapped in the atmosphere by man-made global warming pollution. Uh, We now trap as much heat in the Earth's system every day, extra heat, as would be released by 400,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs going off every day. It's a big planet, but that's a lot of energy. And with the uh, melting of the ice cover on, on lakes, not least the Great Lakes, The winds pick up more speed because of that, too. I want to ask about the pipelines. So in the last couple of years, Ottawa gave the green light to Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, Last year, Trump has approved the Keystone XL. Pipelines seem inevitable, but what should environmentalists do to make sure that as these projects go ahead, if they do go ahead, uh, what do we do to make sure that there is as little negative environmental impact as possible. And what have we learned from the past? Well, first of all, that's yet another issue where the United States Senate refused to go along with uh, President Trump's recommendation to cut out one of the laws requiring extra attention uh, to stopping leaks and to ensuring safety. Uh, I personally would like to see a much quicker transition away from all fossil fuels. And I'm not happy about all these pipelines in my own country as well. But I recognize we're in a transition period, getting a price on carbon, getting a global policy in place. Those are important steps now. And as the cost of renewable energy, not only for uh, powering uh, the electric generating uh, process, but also now to replace uh, Uh, internal combustion engines with EVs being introduced by every manufacturer of cars in the world, that gives us a chance to uh, speed up this transition in the years ahead. One final 
question in this little segment here. Uh, what can be done to make sure that Canada's Indigenous groups are more involved in key environmental decisions? Well, I think it's important to do so, and I admire Justin Trudeau's leadership in uh, taking steps to uh, provide the respect and opportunities for participation that have long been needed. And as an environmentalist, I will say that uh, it is striking how many environmental struggles are actually now being led by indigenous peoples. Uh, we have seen in the United States, in Seattle, uh, for example, the Lumi tribe uh, actually won a huge victory to reduce carbon emissions and coal exports. And uh, the Standing Rock Sioux uh, taught the entire world a lesson with their powerful teaching, uh, Water is Life. Uh, there's a battle right now in the Grand Canyon uh, with the Havasupai uh, who are trying to uh, prevent the contamination of water supplies in that region with a new uranium mine that can disrupt underwater, uh, underground uh, water supplies. Uh, there are many other examples that I could cite, but I'll, I'll just uh, sum up by saying that there is a lot of wisdom that can be found in, in, in tribes and uh, in uh, the traditions and teachings of indigenous peoples that all of us would do well to heed. Jeff Skoll is with us as well. Um, tell me how you became involved uh, with Mr. Gore and this project, and why now, 10 years later, mm. are we seeing another inconvenient sequel? That didn't it, sound right, but it, you know what I mean, it, another, it, another, a follow-up. Film. Indeed. Here we are, uh, an inconvenient sequel, uh, opening uh, August 4th all across Canada. And um, this really started uh, in 2005 when I saw Al uh, do his slideshow presentation. And at that point, Al had been going around uh, showing his uh, slideshow to 100 people, 200 people at a time. And it, it, it blew me away how urgent uh, the issue was and how little uh, people knew about it. Uh, so after Al's presentation, and uh, you know, I just started Participant Media, my uh, film company about you know, important world issues, uh, approached Al and said, well, what if we, what if we made this into a movie and uh, you know, brought it to millions of people around the world? I and said, I, bad idea. And <laughs> Al, said, Al said, bad idea. And uh, well, we, we weren't too sure ourselves, but we felt it was important and uh, to try to get the word out. Uh, so um, in a miraculous uh, next couple of years, uh, the film got out in a, in a way uh, that reached about a billion people. Not a billion people saw the movie, but articles about the movie. Right. We invented the phrase An Inconvenient Truth, and the uh, uh, Americans uh, who cared about uh, climate uh, went from about 30% in 2005, before the film was released, to 87% the year after the film was released. And we thought, this is great, um, battle over, things are going to change. Uh, now, of course, they didn't. It got super complicated. And over the years, uh, uh, the vice president and myself and our teams uh, have talked about, is it time to do a follow-up? Is it time to do a, 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 a movie, a show, something uh, to catch up on what the first film uh, left us with. So uh, a couple of years ago, April uh, 2015, uh, Al and I sat together, and Al very wisely said, you know, it's been 10 years since we started the first film, 
A lot has happened in the world, and a lot of people are wondering, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? Why don't we tell that story? I think we have the permission with that 10-year anniversary. And what what else is new that people might get excited about? And we realized the uh, uh, the economics and the adoption of clean tech mm-hmm. and uh, electrical electric cars and batteries. Things were coming to a point where it almost made no sense anymore to have fossil fuels. Uh, so we were excited to tell that story. Uh, we filmed it almost entirely prior to the U.S. election, not expecting such a change in the uh, political system. But uh, the the film, um, it, you know, is has turned out to be very timely and topical. And we are back with the story that the climate is dangerous and bad. It's urgent. The solutions are at hand, and we've got to use our our voices, our votes and our individual opportunities to change things fast. I have just two questions. We're going to run out of time here. I have just two questions to follow up on that. Uh, I think that the thing that this movie does so well is that while the first one was very effective in its use of graphs and numbers and facts and figures and that kind of thing, that's what they are. They're cold facts, numbers, and figures that we can process intellectually, but sort of emotionally, I'm not sure that that always connects with us. What I thought this film did so well is that as a person who lives in a city, when I see footage of streets melting in India, Mm. that's my doorway in, you know, Mm -hmm. that's something that I can relate to. Maybe it's simplistic on my behalf, but when I see something that I can understand, that's how I get the bigger picture. And I mean, was that, I guess it was deliberate. It must've been deliberate on, on those decisions are made for a reason to show that footage yeah uh, well of course uh, bonnie cohen and john chink the directors uh, made uh, great decisions in my opinion i'm a little biased but i think they did an amazing job a, a lot of the images come from my new slideshow and w- what i try to do with the slide material is to recreate for others the aha moments that I personally have had. And in that case, that's a great example that you use. That hit me the same way. When you see the streets melting. And people's shoes literally sticking, sticking to, to the, the asphalt. Yeah. Absolutely. I've got, I've got a whole uh, deck of slides just of streets melting around the world. And there was a plane on the runway in Washington Reagan Airport where the people got on the plane and fasten your seatbelts. Then the flight attendant comes back on and says, sorry, we all have to get off because the runway's melted and Mm. the plane has sunk into the tarmac and we can't move. Uh, And there are lots of examples of that happening around the world. Now, we've built a civilization optimized for the climate conditions that led to the flourishing of humanity, and now we're destroying those conditions. We can bring it back. We can stop the worst of these consequences, but we have to act. We're out of time, but just one one sort of tough question, I guess, is when I saw this film, and you're all over the world, and you're flying, so how do you offset the carbon footprint that is left by that? Because it's it's a question that comes up, I guess, and I'm sure you have an answer, but it's, it's, it's a question that comes up. Well, Jeff's company and my organization, we do a complete offset. I planted 16,000 trees on my farm last year, but we do other offsets uh, 
uh, in addition to that. Yeah, and uh, for all my organizations, for myself, for our films, um, we, we do uh, something called uh, negative offsetting. So uh, we, um, you know, we, we, we fund these things that will take coal plants offline and put on solar plants and things like that. Uh, but for every, for every mile we fly, for every uh, uh, trip we take, we actually double offset. So we don't just offset the amount we fly. We do a, a doubling. So if everybody did that, we'd have, uh, you know, no more, uh, no more climate uh, issues. That's a, it's a small statement, but uh, an important one. That's Jeff Skoll and the former Vice President of the United States, Al Gore, talking about the new film and the inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power. You know, we started off the show with George A. Romero, and it kind of occurred to me that if you do a Google search for reviews about his films, George A. Romero's zombie films, or any article about him, really, the word gore is going to come up. So I like to think that we did a sneaky little thing. We included... George A. Romero and Gore, well, Al Gore, in the same podcast, although Al Gore didn't talk about zombies. Thank you. That's it. That's all there is. Thank you for coming by. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thanks to Al Gore, to Jeff Skoll, the late, great George Romero. We think of you often around here. So great to hear your voice again. For all of you, please come back and see us again. We put up a new show every single Monday. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. Who knows? It might be one of your favorite people. So make sure that you come back and see us again very soon.